I would draw your attention to the um, italicized um, notice under Word on page 8. We listen as we hear God's Word proclaimed and are invited to make the biblical story our story to see ourselves as characters in the drama of redemption. I'll offer a brief prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank thank you for your holy written word. We thank you for Pastor Jim. We ask that you will fill him with the Holy Spirit and may he preach boldly. We ask that you will give us ears to hear, minds to process, and hearts to apply Jeremiah's letter to the uh, exiled Israelites. We ask these things in the name of our triune God. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah 29, the first 14 verses. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisa, son of Shaphan, and to Jeremiah, Jemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because it prospers. if it prospers, you will prosper as well. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you not, and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place which I have carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Over the past several weeks here at Geneva, we've been learning from the book of Jeremiah, and we have just this week and and next week left as we come to the end of this series. If you've been with us, uh, you know that Jeremiah was a Jewish prophet who lived in the midst of one of the most turbulent periods in the history of Israel, the years before 
the Babylonian exile. Uh, For decades, uh, Jeremiah warned the people that a terrible disaster was coming to Israel because of the people's failure to keep covenant with their God and, and live according to his ways as a people of justice and righteousness. Well, in the first decade of the 6th century B.C., judgment arrived in the form of the Babylonian conquest. The great Middle Eastern superpower, Babylon, conquered Jerusalem. Now, for those of you who uh, started taking the class with Kevin Chow today uh, at 9 a.m., you're going to get a very special perspective on that conquest uh, from the prophet Habakkuk uh, around the same time. But the conquest did not come all at once. Uh, There were three waves of attack, and after each one, the Babylonians would bring some people back to Babylon, and they would leave some behind. And so communication could take place uh, between the exiles and the people still in Jerusalem. What we heard today in Jeremiah 29 is a letter written in 588 B.C., after the second deportation and before the temple and the city are crushed for good in 586. So at this time, the Babylonians had taken the elite of the nation uh, back to Babylon, about a thousand miles away. The the king and the royal family, the priests, the local officials, the, the skilled craftsmen. In other words, all the people of education and influence and, and leadership the nation. This was a deliberate strategy on their part. It was brilliant, really. Instead of wiping out all of the people, they they allowed them to live. They brought the leaders to Babylon, but there they expected them to be good Babylonians, working for the empire, assimilating to its values, and eventually becoming absorbed within it. This is the context for Jeremiah's letter. Jeremiah, writing from Jerusalem, was was writing to tell the people that though they were in exile, God had not abandoned them. He had a purpose for them, which we we hear in verse 7. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. This was surprising. They're to seek the peace and and the prosperity of their enemies, their conquerors. Let's consider three questions today about what this might mean. First, for whom was this command? Who are the people who receive a command like this? Second, to what does it call us? And third, why does God work this way? Using his weak and wounded people to bring a blessing to the nations. So, who, what, and why? Let's consider who first. A story in today's New York Times Magazine is entitled, America's Professional Elite, Wealthy, Successful, and Miserable. It surveys the work of of well-educated, successful, powerful people who are deeply unhappy. They don't enjoy the people they work with or for. Their work lacks meaning and significance. They're paid well, but they're not sure that it's worth it. In the article, 
a successful hedge fund manager tells how he earns about $1.2 million a year and hates going to the office. He says, I feel like I'm wasting my life. When I die, is anyone going to care that I earned an extra percentage point of return? My work feels totally meaningless. He received an offer at a startup, and he would have loved to take it, but it paid half as much, and he felt locked into a lifestyle that made this pay cut impossible. My, my wife laughed when I told her about it, he said. This is a good illustration of what we've called in Jeremiah the, the human predicament. Our greatest problem is not just the wrong things that we do, it's also that we put our loves in the wrong order. So we put our desire for comfort and success over our desire for meaning and purpose and contributing to the welfare of others. We do this in all sorts of ways, as, as we've talked about. And so did the Israelites. Before the exile, they worshipped idols of safety and security to the neglect of the poor. And in Babylon, they continued to make gods in their own image. Jeremiah warns them that the deceiving prophets are telling dreams of a quick return to Jerusalem. And he urges them to turn away from these easy answers of peace and prosperity for themselves to embrace the Lord's purpose for them in exile. He says, settle down for the long term. Build houses, plant gardens, get married, give your children in marriage. Jeremiah could say this because he believed that God was sovereign even over the exile. Notice in this passage, who was responsible for this exile? Now, verse 1 says that this letter was written to those whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. But three other times, in, in verses 4, 7, 14, the Lord says, I have carried you into exile. The point is that even this catastrophe is under God's control. This is what Jeremiah calls them and us to believe. So often we are closed to a word of God speaking into our lives like this because we think we know what should happen. We know what we need. We know where we're going. And usually, we're pretty confident that it shouldn't involve too much suffering. Maybe a little bit, just to make us feel like we're working at it, but definitely not too much. But what if God has a purpose in our pain, in our weakness, in our failure, in order to make us a blessing to others. In the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis describes a group of dwarves uh, who are in the new, restored, healed Narnia, where everything is beautiful and, and good, but the dwarves refuse to see it. Uh, they would rather believe that they are inside a dark, smelly stable. No matter what anyone does for them, they refuse to believe that they are surrounded by sunlight, grass, and flowers. 
Then the great lion, Aslan, shows up, and Lucy asks him to do something for these dwarves. So he, show, he says he will show them what he can and cannot do. First, he, he makes all these delicacies appear before them, pies and meats and desserts and wine. And they begin gobbling it down, but it quickly becomes clear that they can't taste the food properly. They think they are eating and drinking the, the sorts of things that you might find in a stable. They drink the wine and they say, ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Then they start fighting because everyone thinks another dwarf has something better. The scene ends like this. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarves are for the dwarves. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, and yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. For whom is God's command to seek the peace of the city? It's for anyone who is ready to receive help, who are ready to trust in God's sovereign ways and to believe that he can use even your failure, even your suffering, to bless others. Okay, so to what does this command then mean, to to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city? Let's start with the meanings of the words peace and prosperity. In in Hebrew, there's only one word here, the word shalom. But this uh, NIV translation has used two words to try and capture its its full meaning. In, In Hebrew, shalom is not simply an absence of conflict, but the world made right in every way, culturally, socially, spiritually. This is what God's people were to pursue in Babylon, a holistic care for the community in which they found themselves. This means doing something distinctive and difficult. It's distinctive because they had to resist assimilation to the dominant values of the empire. They're called to pray to the Lord. They're they're still God's people even in a foreign land. It's also difficult because they had to reject tribalism and and the temptation to separate from Babylonian society for the sake of cultural or or religious purity. They must pursue the common good even when it means blessing their enemies and conquerors. They may not have chosen to be taken to Babylon, but it should be, Jeremiah is saying, a, a better place because they are there. The New Testament says that the the situation of Christians is is distinctive and difficult in the same kind of ways. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and and glorify God on the day he visits us. Yes, this world remains broken and, and fallen in many ways. But those who belong to Jesus 
should neither withdraw from the culture nor assimilate to the culture. Instead, we must pursue the peace of the city. In the New York Times uh, magazine story that I quoted earlier, the author cites a a study on how meaningfulness uh, influences job satisfaction. The researchers wanted to figure out why certain janitors at a large hospital were so much more enthusiastic uh, than others. So they began conducting interviews, and they found that some of the janitorial staff saw their jobs as, quote, not as just tidying up, but as a form of healing. The article goes on. One woman mopped rooms inside a brain injury unit where many residents were comatose. The woman's duties were basic. Change bedpans, pick up trash. But she also took the initiative to swap around the pictures on the walls because she believed a subtle stimulation change in the unconscious patient's environment might speed their recovery. She talked to other convalescents about their lives. She would dance around, tell jokes to families sitting vigil at bedsides, try try to cheer up or distract everyone from the pain and uncertainty that otherwise surrounded them. This janitor is, is a model for us. How would our mindsets change if we all saw our jobs as a form of healing? Not just in a medical setting, but in every area of life. As artists, small business owners, scientists, teachers, employees, mothers, and fathers. In a book that I highly recommend called Culture Care, the artist Mako Fujimura describes a key moment in his life when his wife Judy uh, was a graduate student and he was teaching at a special education school and, and painting at home. They were living on a tight budget and eating a lot of tuna each week. He says that one evening he was sitting in their small apartment worried about how they were going to afford the rent and pay for their necessities. The refrigerator was empty and he He had no cash left. Then Judy, his wife, walked in, and she had brought home a bouquet of flowers. Mako got really upset. How could you think of buying flowers if we can't even eat? Judy's reply, he says, has been etched in his heart for over 30 years. We need to feed our souls, too she said. He writes this, the irony is that I am an artist. I am the one supposedly feeding people's souls, but in worrying for tomorrow, in the stoic responsibility I feel to make ends meet, to survive, I fail to be the artist. Judy is the artist. She brings home a bouquet. Culture care, he says, as opposed to culture war, of course, He says this idea of culture care is is providing care for our culture's soul, to bring to our cultural home our bouquet of flowers so that reminders of beauty, both ephemeral and enduring, are present in even the harshest environments where survival is at stake, cultivating an environment in which people and creativity thrive. Friends, 
his, his point here is that this is not just a calling for artists. It's for all of us. And, and especially Christians should have this mindset. We're called by God to seek the peace of this city in which we live. It should be a better place because God's people are here. This means doing the work collectively as, as we're doing at West High School. You'll, you'll find several announcements in, in the bulletin about opportunities that we have coming up there. But it also happens individually. In the past couple months, I've heard such encouraging stories about Genevans who are serving in prisons and and homeless shelters, and and workplaces. We are the church gathered in this place for worship every week, but we are also the church scattered to contribute to the cultural and the social life of this great city. So, we've talked about the people who are given the command to seek the peace of the city. We've talked about what that command means. Finally, Finally, let's talk about why it matters. Listen to what God says in in verses 10 to 14. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper. There's the word shalom again. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I think what would have shocked the exiles the most was not just that the Lord had a purpose in their hardship, but that he invited them to call on him, to to pray to him, to seek him, and to find him right there in Babylon. He says, I will be found by you. We are invited to believe that even in our most difficult circumstances, God is making himself known to us in his love and his grace. As C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Some of you may have seen this week uh, a sermon that the author and Washington Post journalist Michael Gerson gave at the National Cathedral last Sunday. If you haven't seen it, I suggest that you watch it this afternoon. It will be 12 minutes really well spent. He's been, he, he had been scheduled to speak at the cathedral earlier in February, but missed it because he was hospitalized for depression, which he's, he's very open and transparent about. The way he speaks about his illness is powerful. He makes his medical condition a metaphor for the human condition. Listen to what he said. All of us, whatever our natural serotonin level, Look around us and see plenty of reason for doubt, anger, and sadness. A child dies. A woman is abused. A schoolyard becomes a killing field. A typhoon sweeps away the innocent. If we knew or felt the whole of human suffering, we would drown in despair. By all objective evidence, we are arrogant animals 
headed for the extinction that is the way of all things. Faith, thankfully, does not preclude doubt. It consists of staking your life on the rumor of grace. I have one friend, John, who finds God's hidden hand in the habits and colorings of birds. My friend Catherine, when her first child was born, discovered what she calls a love much greater than evolution requires. I like that. A love much greater than evolution requires. This experience of pulling back the curtain of materiality and briefly seeing the landscape of a broader world comes in many forms. It can be religious and non-religious, Christian and non-Christian. We sometimes search for a hidden door when the city has a hundred open gates. But there is this difference for a Christian believer. At the end of all our striving and longing, we find not a force, but a face. All language about God is metaphorical. But for Christians, the metaphor became flesh and dwelt among us. In the exile, many Israelites must have thought that God had deserted his people. They doubted that he was good or faithful. Others must have thought that he had simply failed. The gods of Babylon appeared stronger, so the Lord of Israel must not be really the the all-powerful creator. What Jeremiah's letter tells the people and, and what the rest of the Bible shows is that neither of these things is true. Christianity says that God is so good that he is present with us even in our deepest suffering. Even when our suffering is a judgment for all the ways that we have gone astray, he does not let go of us. And he is so all-powerful that he can use our failure, our weakness, and even evil itself to bring redemption to the world. This is what we see above all in the cross. On the cross, Jesus enters the darkest place of human suffering and separation from God. He experiences our guilt and our shame. The Son of God goes into exile for us, even to death. But God was faithful and raised him from the dead. This means that wherever you find yourself this morning, whatever your struggle or your sin, you can look to him. You can be assured that his sacrificial love is for you. And then you can go. You could seek peace and justice in this world because he has sought your peace first. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we hesitate to believe that you are this good and and this powerful. We are so aware of our limitations, our weaknesses, and our failures. Help us to believe today that though we are more broken and sinful than we may have realized, we are also more loved than we could ever imagine through the person and work of Jesus. We look to him and to his sacrifice today. Grant us grace to follow him wherever you call us, to to seek the peace of the university, uh, this great city, the world. 
We can only do this by your Spirit. I thank you that your Spirit is active in this church and in other churches across Madison so that your kingdom may be manifest in this place. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.